1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 36 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Vasodhya. Hey, Raj.
0: Hey, Timothy. Good to see you again.
1: Good to see you. Boy, are we honored today to have the guest we have, Richard Leiter, the man who's probably the father of purpose. Um, He has written over 11 books that in some way or another deal with this topic of purpose. He's been the host of The Power of Purpose, an NPR, and sorry, a PBS special that's been viewed by millions of people. Um, He has been the founder of InVenture, The Purpose Company. It's created a guide for individuals to live, work, and lead on purpose. And he's ranked by Forbes as one of the top five most respected coaches. He's coached over 100,000 leaders and through his talks and influence touched millions of people uh, worldwide. So Richard, um, one of the last things I want to say is that for over 30 years, you've led these in tours of Tanzania, which I always thought was just a fascinating thing on my bucket list at some point. We're just so honored and pleased to have you here today, the father of purpose, Richard Leiter.
2: I'm equally honored. It's a real privilege. Thank you for
1: including me. Well, I'm, I guess one of the first things <laughs> I want to ask is, you know, why do you get up in the morning?
2: Well, since I was young, I've always been curious about why people do what they do and why they don't change if they're stuck. And so I kind of went the psychology route. And my reason for getting up in the morning is to help others unlock, that's different than discover, unlock their purpose because it's inside, waiting to be released in certain ways. And we can get into that. So I find great pleasure in hearing people's stories. And maybe adding some value or some something to that so
1: um, that's that's my purpose so it, it's interesting what was that journey to purpose like how did you come to the point where you said okay this is the thing purpose is the, the unlock here it's the lever point that's going to help people live more full lives how did you get to that point?
2: well I would say there was uh, three things that were that all kind of happened within a Reasonably short period of time. One, when I got out of graduate school in counseling psychology, I saw on the bulletin board in the school that the man, one of the people I studied was doing a seminar in San Diego. And I didn't have any money, and I was in Colorado at the time, but his name was Victor Frankl, oh who God. wrote, Oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> oh. So I spent a week with Victor Frankl and you could hear a pin drop for a week and it changed my life forever. And uh, he said, you know, the last of the human freedoms is choice, is to choose what you want your life to be about, regardless of the adversity. And for your listeners, you know, he was in a concentra- three concentration camps and his whole family was killed and he survived and went on to uh, write Man's Search for Meaning, which is a seminal book in many, many people's lives. Coupled with that, um, I uh, had a, it was the Vietnam War era and I uh, had to get a job, do something or go to war. And I got into a a reserve unit in Minnesota where I live. So I didn't have to go, I had to go into the army for six years, but I didn't have to go to to Vietnam. And so I got a job, but during that job, I had a side hustle. I was one of the top HR people at what is now US Bank. U.S. Bank. It used to be called First Bank, mm. and uh, but I had a su- what's now called a side hustle called Lunch Hour Limited. You mm. buy me lunch, and I coach you. So you know, my uh, actual my, the CEO didn't think that was such a great idea that I was coaching people about their their careers. But but I had an eighty percent success rate. 80 percent of the people I coached quit.
0: And, uh,
2: <laughs> however, for conscious capitalists, many of them stayed. I mean they quit, but they went back and reimagined their work and to add more of who they were to what they were doing or switch to some other place in the in the organization. And about 15% left. And then the third thing, I got a fellowship with with what is now the Harvard Study of Adult Development, the longest standing study of adults. So if you add Frankel and my own practice, so to speak, and a year in Boston on the Harvard campus studying uh I, that was, I said, this is my calling. There's something calling me here. So I left my uh, corporate role and took up my side hustle. And, uh, you know, it was a roller coaster. You know, I had to mortgage my house second time. And, you know, I wasn't exactly making a living right off the bat. But eventually hmm. it turned into, you know, here we are today.
1: Wow, I, there's so much there I want to dig into. and the first one, you know Raj and I are both going to jump on this one is Victor Frankl and the, the, just the, the being with him. I mean, we're both big he's a big hero of us. we, you know, we, we recommend his book all the time. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, I've never met anybody who's actually met him. What was what was, the, what was the, the vibe? What was it like being around him? What was he like as a person: Intense um mm.
2: you know he, between his eyesight and his uh body a bit hunched and his teeth etc he you know he was fine but they were uh, the reason he was in san diego was that one of the universities there was going to create a victor frankl institute a logotherapy institute which never got off uh. the ground and never got funded exactly uh and um but it, you know there were chalkboards remember chalkboards and so yeah. he would write and the chalk would be flying and he would be and the small group that was there, about twenty-five people only, um, and I kind of weasled my in, way into to that. I mean, they just left him alone. If he needed a break, he needed a break. But when he spoke, you could hear a pin drop. Everything he said had such a relevance and an intensity uh, to it. And but, but loving. I mean, it was all about compassion and mm-hmm. um, purpose. You know the. The soul of purpose is
0: compassion. And he was all about compassion.
1: Mm.
0: Well, the only other person that I've met is uh, Edith Eva Eger. Uh, yeah. Who is also a uh, survivor from Auschwitz. And she she yep. said she danced with Viktor Frankl on his 80th birthday. <laughs>
2: and, <laughs> I have her book in the other room and I haven't met her, but what uh, was she like?
0: Oh, she's amazing. And she's still alive, actually. I met her at Deepak Chopra's... Uh, sages and scientists, uh, event. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, she was, she was incredible. Um, you know, she yeah. went to Auschwitz, she was taken when she was 16. Yeah. Uh, she survived because Joseph Mengele took a fancy yeah. to her. She was a dancer and that's how right. she Kept right. out of the chambers and her mother was sent in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. So her story is, is incredible because she came out, she survived. She was actually in a pile of bodies, having been left for dead by the uh, by the uh, guards once the Americans yeah. were approaching. And, I, and an American soldier walked by and he saw one finger moving, you know, in, in, mm. in this body that was three or four deep. Right. Yeah. He pulled her out and that's how she survived. And then eventually made her way to the US and she had the survivor guilt for decades. Yeah. And she had to yeah. go back to Auschwitz and she had to yeah. relive and she had to lie down on those beds and, you know, just go through the whole experience yeah, we connect to it in order to be able to be released from it and then and then shape her life. And yeah, so it's, it's an incredible, mm. incredible story.
2: Yeah, and one of the lessons back to this experience of him was that was a showstopper or a game changer for me personally. And I think to this day, as for many people who read the book or, or read, read about him, he said, Don't ask what is your purpose, ask this what is life asking of me now in this situation whatever it is purpose is the backstory for that you know you have to have a mindset like like that to begin with because purpose is but purpose is a verb it's something Mm. we do it's not something we have Mm. and so acting means what is life asking of me now right now in this situation and you make that choice and it's either about you or it's about them and so uh, you know purpose Mm. goes through three layers or three stages the first is it's about you and about your own self-awareness of your own mindset and gifts and things and then secondly it's about us we realize hopefully as we get a bit older that uh and i mean from adolescent to adult type of thing it's about not just about me but it's about my tribe my family my community and others and then ultimately the sages like uh, Frankel and. Uh, Others say it's about all of us. It's a universality. And so purpose is both fundamental and universal. And um, it's, not a, it's not a luxury. That's the mm. biggest insight that I can give to people is that it's not a luxury. This is fundamental to health, to healing, to mm. happiness, to trust as a leader uh, mm. and, and other things. And so uh, you can go by different names but uh, purpose is, is something that um, is, not a, is not a luxury for the educated or the older or the wealthy, or it is fundamentally in our DNA.
1: So pull on that string a little bit more. It's fundamentally in our DNA, one. And then, two, you made a, a quote that I loved, the soul of purpose is compassion. Um, connect those two pieces, if you could, um, for us.
2: Well, uh, in the book, The Power of Purpose, third edition, uh, written while I was doing the PBS special, because you have to have a brand new book coming out if you're going to do a PBS special, but they wanted that book re, re, you know, renewed. And one of the things they paid for was for me to go to neuroscience labs in different parts of the country and visit with, and I've been a coach actually, and a consultant to the American Academy of Neurology for for a decade, mm. So I knew a lot of these neuroscientists, sort of. Mm. But one of them uh, at Johns Hopkins held up a pill. And he said, Richard, you see this pill? Would you buy this? And I said, what does it do? Uh, his name is Dr. Majid Fatui. He's an Iranian immigrant who's a neuroscience uh, researcher. And this pill, he said, will reduce the effects of Alzheimer's, which so many people fear as they get older. Rightfully so, it will help with sleep apnea and sleep disorders. It will add seven to ten years to your life, and it will help your telomeres grow so that you won't. And he, he went through all this stuff, and I said, "Well, I mean, who could afford that?" And he said, "Well, it's free." And he smiled, and he said, "We now can measure purpose in the brain, purpose and elasticity in the brain, and people who have it, and even people who have Alzheimer's and who live." a good life with Alzheimer's versus those who, who are, you know, decline with it. So uh, anyway, uh, he said, it won't be long before your doctor will be prescribing that you need a reason to get up in the morning. So purpose Mm -hmm. is really the answer to why, why are you here? What's the point? Why do you get up in the morning? And so that mindset. uh, And so I think, uh, you know, when people start to see that there's actually evidence, so it becomes, you know, every new idea goes through, Mm. Stages. The first is is uh, ridicule, where, you know, purpose was like, well, you know, get a life, do something that purpose, who's going to pay for that? And then opposition, often violent opposition or pushback, and then self-evident. Well, purpose is now pretty self-evident. And part of that is because of the neuroscience that's, put, that's uh, actually um, proving it in certain ways. It's not the answer, it's part of the answer of well-being.
1: But the other part of that was soul of purpose is compassion.
2: Yeah.
1: And I'm curious about that. Where, where, how did what, you get to that conclusion?
2: Well, a c- couple different ways. I took a year off and went into uh, seminary uh, about a decade ago to study purpose and world religions. Because I wanted to, you know, I've, I've looked at it from a psychological and a philosophical angle, but I wanted to look at it from a medical health angle but also a spiritual angle and i found that every major religion talks about purpose in in its love for others or it's it's not about you it's about them in certain ways and i so they use different language and different metaphors etc but uh if it's and i would answer this tim and that is that purpose is a felt sense it's a concept but it's you can feel it when you're with somebody Mm. and you can Mm. feel it when you uh, you know, I always give people the default purpose. People say, oh, you know, it's too big an idea. I'll get around to this. So well, just let me give you the pill right now. Let me give you the RX, the prescription. And it's only two words. It's grow and give. If you're growing and giving every day, consciously, and we're talking about consciousness as if you're consciously making the choice to grow and give every day there are 1440 choices in the day hmm. 1440 purpose moments where you can step into someone else's shoes so to speak so I said put a put grow and give on a post-it put it on your mirror and every morning ask yourself how am I going to grow and give and before you go to sleep at night hold yourself accountable And, um, or have a purpose partner who holds you accountable. And at the end of the day, maybe not the first day, but in the course of the week, you will feel, you'll have a felt sense that this purpose thing feels pretty good. You feel Mm. more alive, have more of a sense of what Joseph Campbell calls bliss, but more aliveness. If you make this choice, even just for one moment a day,
1: Mm. you don't
2: have to save the world. Mm.
1: Beautiful,
0: right. beautiful i love that uh, grow and give i think it's better than grab and go right <laughs> 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 that's the unconscious <laughs> capitalist <laughs> <laughs> that's good <laughs> but i think richard you're you uh, know in, in a way you were really fortunate in that in your 20s you got to have these experiences and get exposed to uh, these uh, these thinkers and be and uh, and uh, uh, influences for me, I was almost fifty uh, when I my purpose kind of found me. I felt because I wasn't actively yep. searching because it wasn't in the atmosphere back then, you know.
2: Yeah. Uh, and um,
0: and I had not read Viktor Frankl until t- uh, until after that, and um, so I was following more what Andrew Harvey would say: follow your heartbreak. Yeah. I knew what really distressed me, what brought me pain, you know, especially in the world of business and in marketing, all the, all the abuse and the unethical stuff and everything else. So I was following my heartbreak until I found a portal into the other side of it, the bliss, Like yeah. this was causing heartbreak. What is, what is the answer to that? And that's, that's when I felt my purpose kind of found me. Mm-hmm. I had stayed connected to that which mattered deeply. Uh, to me, right? So, would that yeah. be a pathway for some people? If you can't find your bliss, at least identify your heartbreak and see what clues that gives you.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's three myths, Raj, that I talk about with purpose. Number one is that people say, Oh, you found a cause. And I said, Purpose is not a cause. It can be a cause. It, it, it can find you through the heartbreak, could be a cause to one of your children or, you know, anything. It could be the climate. It could be other types of things that, um, but it's not, it doesn't have to be a cause. It's a mindset. Like I'm saying, it's a choice you make every morning. Second myth is that it's a revelation, that it was revealed to you in your 20s because of Mm -hmm. this, but it hasn't been revealed to me. And now I'm 50 or whatever. And I said, it can be a revelation, but it also is a practice. It's something that you can get by choosing common sense to make a difference in one person's life every day. And the third is that it's a luxury. And, uh, and I've already said that it's not a luxury. It's, it's fundamental. And my favorite quote about that for people who are aging or who are at different stages kind of still seeking their purpose is this. They, it's from the American essayist E.B. White. He said this, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day, but I think it makes it easier to plan the day because saving and savoring is a good thing. You want to savor and have a happy, fulfilled life, but if it's all about that kind of narcissism possibly, that's not, that happiness erodes pretty quickly. Deep fulfillment comes from saving, but you don't have to save the world. You just have to reach out to one person every day. That's it. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know, Richard, it's interesting. One of the debates we've had or discussions we've been having over the past about purpose in organizations yeah. is does an organization have a purpose that is sort of eternal in the sense that it's constant versus you articulate your purpose in different ways and at its core, there's still something that's core. But as you evolve, as you, as your organization evolves, you know, it may change. And I'm curious whether with individuals, you know the the purpose one feels at twenty, or the purpose one feels at forty, the the uh, the evolution of that purpose at fifty or sixty. Does, does it does it fundamentally change, or does it just sort of morph around a theme? How how would you describe that? Uh, I'll
2: share the what I consider the, the formula for discovering your purpose, and the formula is um, three letters g plus p plus v equals c g plus p plus v equals c the c is calling Mm. and calling is is a vocational word since you grounded it in an organizational context here uh the c is calling which is a um vocare to be called and what are we called to do? Well, the G is gifts. You could call it talents, uh, but gifts. What are your gifts? And I created a tool called calling cards, and I've written a lot about gifts. Hmm. And uh, and I went back and talked when I developed this calling cards tool. I went back and talked to um, parents and teachers and siblings and others and uh, about. Did this kid's gifts emerge young, or did they come later in life? And oh no, they came young and I, I always ask audiences how to raise your hand, how many of you have siblings and not everybody but many and they'll and I'll say, are were their gifts are their gifts the same as yours? And there's laughter. No, no, no. I said, well, when did you notice? Oh, when we were little, mm-hmm. you notice and if you have kids, you know or grandkids or Nieces or nephews, you notice they're different. So one of the self-awareness musts in discovering the power of purpose and unlocking it is to discern your gifts. The P stands for passions or purpose. What, is, what do you want to use your gifts in the service of? What are the things in the organization, for example, that light you up that you'd love to use your gifts and that's what I was telling you about my lunch hour limited thing. I, I wanted to use my gifts of coaching more, but I was in an HR administrative role and that wasn't part of it. So I had to have a side hustle to do that, which many people today do have. Mm, yeah. And um, so passions are, what is it you care about? What are the problems you want to solve? Who are the people you want to help? You know, that kind of thing. And then the V is the big one. And that's values. Mm. Are you using your gifts? On things you care about in an environment where you have a voice, where the values are such that that you can be transparent and you can be authentically who you are. If you have to fake it, you're not going to be uh, as productive and as fulfilled as you you could be. So, you know, I think through the conscious capitalist lens that that culture is perhaps the number one. Well, in my in vocational psychology, it's the number one knockout factor. Yeah. People people leave cultures. They leave bosses um, and find a thing to do exactly what they're doing somewhere else, but it's a culture that it's a better fit. So yeah. that's what I do a lot is to help people uh, figure out that formula. And I call I call it the napkin test. And uh, actually, on a, the napkin test came on a Delta flight on my way to London after somebody else had seen a PBS special. And he was sitting next to me in business class, and uh, I had to do a speech the next day and in, in, uh, the next afternoon in, in London, and we were going to land in the morning. And he kept bugging me. He said, you know, I just lost my job. I'm going over to clean out my con- my apartment, et cetera, and then move back to the States. Can you help me figure out what to do with the rest of my life? And uh, so I, I call this, by the way, the Got a Minute School of Coaching because in this business people say got a minute can you tell me what I should do with the rest of my life <laughs> i'm bu- i'm busy i said well if you're that busy take out a napkin and write down this formula and and he said that that's brilliant that's exactly the framework i needed to to think about and then he let me finish writing my speech and, and sleep <laughs> so i now i now do something called the napkin test and uh, the napkin test is basically an actual form that looks like a napkin that has people do what i just Shared.
1: This is brilliant. Well, let me let me pull on a big string here because you have a new book coming out, and yep. you know you've written ten or eleven. Is this going to be number twelve or this number eleven? is number eleven. This is number eleven. So you're not at the dirty dozen yet. You're you're, you're almost there.
2: Well, I've written I've <laughs> written chapters in a lot of other people's books and forewords and things. So it's but it's it officially number yeah. It's officially um, number eleven. Yeah.
1: So the title is "Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old." the path of purposeful aging. Right. So brilliant title. Um, why this book? Why now?
2: Well, you know, I'll, I'll uh, say that demographics are one thing, but that's not really it. Uh, you know, we've had added- sell <laughs> the
1: book proposal for sure. But- <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, we
2: we've worldwide and uh, we've added decades to life. And so, um, the average mm-hmm. life expectancy in the early 1900s here in the States used to be age 47. Now it's 85 and over is the highest, fastest growing cohort. So the, what's the purpose of these extra decades? And so people are not retiring because they can't retire, don't want to retire, or want to retire different, differently. And so we started my co-author, who is a philosophy professor, David Shapiro. This is our sixth book together uh and he works a lot with younger people and he's in his 60s i'm in my 70s and we're looking at our own conversation about aging and we decided to really take take it on and see if we we could uh, because everybody's getting from birth everybody's getting older Mm. but not everybody's growing older so how Mm. do we grow older and how do we grow more whole how do we Evolve some of the pieces that we didn't have time to because we were so busy working or raising a family or paying the mortgage or, you know, doing all those things. And so we made this book very uh, much about uh, stories and practices for people to grow whole. And the the whole business of, uh, you know, there's two big shifts. And Raj, I think you kind of brought it up when you talked about turning 50 and that kind of thing. But the first big seismic shift is from uh, youth to adulthood. And then the next big shift is from adulthood to elderhood. And in between, there's a midlife, and there used to be the midlife crisis. And now people are having a later life crisis. Mm-hmm. In many ways, they're still asking the question you know, the question used to be, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so often people will laugh and say, "Well, that's a great title, but I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up." So part it, that's in the book. I mean and, uh, and we talk in the book a, a lot about uh, the good life, which was in the bo- which is in the book "Repacking Your Bags," which yeah. I know you're familiar with and, uh, and, and so helping people to discern their calling and their, uh, and helping them reimagine the good life in the next phase of their life is really what this, this book is about. And, you know, the last book that I, I co-authored was with Alan Weber. And I don't know if you've had Alan on before, but uh, mm-hmm. Alan was the editor of the Harvard Business Review. He left to found Fast Company Magazine. That's how we found each other. He wrote a story about me back in 1998, and that's how we've been very close colleagues and friends ever since. So we wrote a book uh, called Life Reimagined. He sold the magazine, and he went on to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where his wife is an artist and and an architect and things like that, and she wanted to leave Boston and go to New Mexico with the art colonies and art communities there. Well, Alan is now the mayor of Santa Fe, New Mexico. (laughs) So um, people say, well, does this reimagining stuff really work? And I went, well, my co-author reimagined this, this life I've, and so, um, uh, uh, anyway, there are steps that we all yeah. take along the journey during these shifts where we perhaps need a little bit of help. To, you know. Otherwise we're always looking in the rear view mirror, yeah. but what we, yeah. what we help people do is look through the windshield mm-hmm. and the windshield's bigger than the rear view mirror. As you know, looking in the mm-hmm. past is kind of small, good, good. You need to do a life review perhaps. But looking in the windshield, what, what are the possibilities and where's, where's my, where are my headlights, where are my focus, where is that going to be?
0: You know, Richard, uh, in addition to A Man's Search for Meaning, one of the other books that uh, has had a big influence for me is Synchronicity by Joseph Jaworski. And, and this idea that, that in a way we, we get chosen or we are anointed or, you know, that there's something that seeks to emerge and we are the right vehicle for that. Right, and therefore these collisions happen, and what look like coincidences uh, are really synchronicities of yeah. something that seeks to emerge. You know, what's what's your thought on that? Do you think there's uh, there's any uh, relevance to that idea, or is that uh, is that how you think about it as well?
2: Yeah, I think I think about it uh, in this way. And I know Joe, our new Joe, and uh, the book, and I think it's a great book as well. Uh, I, th- I talk about fortuitous encounters. Mm. And Victor Frankl was a fortuitous encounter. I didn't know at the time I was going to meet him and be have my life changed. And I think anybody who's listening to this, including yourselves, has had fortuitous encounters with people who have been, for one reason or another, uh, game changers um, um, uh, for them. Another one for me, and this is kind of last of the bragging rights perhaps, but uh, <laughs> I met Abraham Maslow the year before he died. Mm. And Frankl and Maslow were adversarial oh. because oh. because Frankl thought uh, that the top of the pyramid was a bit narcissistic and Hmm. at the end after Frankl uh, you know self-actualization is all about self Self self-actualization for the sake of what for and and is it for the sake of just yourself and your own success or is it for the sake of something other than that and so after he died his wife after Maslow died his wife came out with a book called which is a very hard read but it's a good read if you're into this stuff, it's called the farther reaches of human nature.
1: Mm.
2: And what he came to the conclusion, they came together, Frankel and um, Maslow and and farther reaches, you know, how many people teach the Maslow pyramid in, in leadership programs around the world and Mm. get it wrong because the top is the, of the pyramid is according to Maslow's self transcendence, which is purpose. And that's what Frankel's, said that it's not it can't be just about self-actualization that's not who we are as human beings it's not in our dna it, it's all about transcending ourselves for the sake of others ultimately yeah. so um, i think you know as we look at some of these seminal works we got to keep looking at them
1: mm. so what do you think gets in the way most often when people are are now sort of saying oh you know i'm I am at that stage where if somebody's sort of saying, "I want to sort of reimagine the next steps." And yeah, this napkin thing is interesting, but you know, I'm stuck. What yeah. What do you find those things that people are getting stuck on?
2: Uh, well, if you don't think you have a purpose, then you don't. I mean, you do, but <laughs> you're you're not going to activate it in, in any way. So part of it is kind of a skepticism that comes that. You know, I, I always think that the I always make a distinction between smart leaders and wise leaders. Mm. And wise leaders are purpose smart. They understand that people need to be who they are authentically if they can, their gifts, passions, and values, and set up a culture to do that in 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 certain ways. But I think this the stuckness is is often about busyness. Mm. I hear oh, that you know that and so. If I stay busy enough, and I, I hear that from retirees, oh, I'm busier than I was when I was working. And I said, well, what are you busy about? Ants are busy. You know, um, What what is that? What matters? And um, uh, ultimately, they're busy doing things they didn't have time to do, for example, with retirees when they were working. But then that ends. They can only travel so much and take all so much and clean so many closets or whatever. And then they um, something's missing. And that something missing can come up through loneliness. And one of the things that I preach the gospel on is isolation is fatal. Mm-hmm. Going it alone is an incredibly bad idea. And I know a lot of leaders who are isolates and who don't seek, they don't have to seek a coach like me or the two of you, but they... They don't have sounding boards, and I would not. I've coached a lot of CEOs in my life, but I would, I would fire them, or I would not hire them. I would not let them hire me if they didn't have a sounding board other than me, mm. because I said isolation is fatal. It's killing your body and your soul, not just your business acumen. Mm. And so, <clears throat> so I think that uh, one of the things to your point about being stuck is that people are alone, and the pandemic has really uh, mm. opened up how important it is, how much we miss that connectivity with, with others. But then that connectivity has to have a certain vulnerability. We have to be real. And so many people um, are not that, you know, we can go into a lot of details about, about that, but living an authentic life means being who you are and that's bringing who you are to the table all, you know, every day.
1: Well, that, that almost leads you, and I don't want to, you know, technical term, you know, vertical adult development, but it is, in a sense, then becomes an adult development issue at some level, doesn't it? I mean, what's my yeah. level of awareness and that ability to be vulnerable, that ability to sort of say, you know what, I'm a human being. I've got these parts of me and I got these parts of me and and that's right. the whole of me. and sometimes. I'm a really cool guy, and sometimes I'm a bit of a jerk. You know? yeah. and, uh, and you know, I really apologize for times I'm a jerk. Um, yeah, but I, I think
2: the secret elixir of leadership is listening mm. and listening to others. But you can't do that unless you're you have the capability or the desire to listen to yourself first yeah. to really realize um, yeah. that, and that's. Something that can come at a younger age or through a crisis right. or, uh, uh, and, uh, and I know I've interviewed people over the age of 65 now for uh, almost 40 years. Every time I write a book, I, I interview elders because, you know, for thousands of years, we sat around the fire with elders and mm-hmm. part of my going to Africa every year, I didn't in this past year because of the pandemic, but um, uh, is to sit around the fire with, with elders and who who are so, and I wrote a book called Claiming a uh, Co-author that was David uh, called Claiming Your Place at the Fire because I saw that the wisest of the elders in Africa, in these tribes that I was privileged to be with, uh, that wisest, not the oldest necessarily, but the wisest of the old sat the closest to the fire. Why? Because they people trusted them, they wanted their stories, they wanted their wisdom, they wanted them to be central so I always ask leaders where will you your place be at the fire mm. you know if, if your constituents had to put you where would they put you and where would you put yourself mm. uh, type mm. of thing and, and so I think uh, in interviewing older people there's been three themes that have come that I think your listeners might find of, of, of interest so very quickly I say if mm. you could live your life over what have you learned what would you do differently and number one is I'd be more reflective so one of the things that a lot of leaders don't take the time to do is to reflect, to step back and look at the big picture and see what really matters and talk to others about it, so to speak. Second, they'd be more courageous. Mm. They could live their life over. And the two areas they'd be the most courageous are work and love. Freud had it right, the Harvard study had it right, et cetera. But work means being more courageous at work, does not mean taking big financial risks. It means being authentically who you are at work. Yeah. Finding you spend You know, 60% of your life working, of your most valuable currency, your time working. And if you're doing something that doesn't fit you, that's a bad investment. And then love or relationships, you know, being more authentic and vulnerable in your relationships, both at work and at at home. That's where a lot of the regrets are for people in their lives. And the third thing, though, so we got reflection, courage. The third thing is purpose. Mm. As as Steve Jobs said, "Don't settle," and uh, what he was talking about was the really the power of, of purpose that everybody wants their life to matter. As Steve Jobs said, he wanted, and I did not meet him, but I've uh, I know Walter Isaacson fairly well. Who wrote the book about him, and uh, and he was, you know, re- really wanted to make a dent in the universe. Mm. That's purpose, and it wasn't just for. Apple's success or his success, he really wanted his products and his company to make a dent in people's lives, a positive dent that is in people's lives. So those three three themes really pull their way through all my work on purpose and helping people reflect, make choices that are more authentic to who they are and, and realize that ultimately mattering matters.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting right now, certainly on the business side, you know, I, I think it's often yep. funny that when we started talking about purpose in 2008, you know, people thought we had two heads, you know, purpose, stakeholders, <laughs> you know, nowadays it's, uh, you know, topic du jour. And yep. you know, actually after this, I'm going to give a talk to the, the city of London marketers and mm-hmm. um, about purpose and a little bit about purpose washing and this whole idea that you can have a purpose, but then you need to make it matter. It's not enough just to have a purpose, you know, like, okay, you found your purpose. That's wonderful. Now you got to make it matter. And, and I'm curious, you know, you you spent a lot of your writing talking about people finding or uh, discovering that purpose inside of them, allowing it to to come out. Um, Particularly as you get to this older generation, what does that mean to you to sort of make it matter now, now that you've sort of started to triangulate on what it is? (laughs) You yeah. well, yeah, <laughs>
2: that's a great question. And, you know, as I said earlier, it's a verb. So it's something we do, we activate and, and we do. And Let me share a story uh, uh, that's in this new book. It's about a guy named Ed Rapp, R-A-P-P. Uh, Ed was the number three guy in Caterpillar. Uh, the You know, one of the largest worldwide companies that builds tractor, you know, Earth moving equipment, so to speak. And at the age of 57, and I was, I knew Ed because uh, we co taught at the Harvard Advanced Management Program. You had to bring in a case study. I brought him in as a live case study. And I also taught in Caterpillar's leadership uh, program. So we knew each other. And at age 57, he was out running with his son and he noticed his foot was dragging. And this was, and make a long story short, he was diagnosed with ALS. Mm. Which is a five five-year life sentence. He's now seven years into it. Mm. And uh rather than just he, he resigned immediately. He was de- he was destined to be the CEO. He was the president of one of the divisions. He was destined to be the CEO of the whole thing. And he retired. And he had a worldwide following because he's a very purpose-driven leader. Mm. People love him and trust him and and we're shocked beyond belief about his diagnosis at the Mayo Clinic. So anyway, he lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, and now in every state. with ALS, he founded something called um, ALS Strong, which has so far raised fourteen million dollars for ALS research wow. since his since his diagnosis. And he's on the boards of different things like that. He walks with arm crutches now. He works out and does a lot of practices. But here's what gives his soul the juice every day. Every single morning, he gets up early and he coaches, like we're doing here on uh, talking with each other on the phone or on Zoom. He coaches somebody who is just diagnosed with ALS and is scared Mm -hmm. out of their wits about it and needs to talk to somebody who has it's not a s they don't know the cause and they don't know this the cure. So it's not like he's mm. getting out of this alive. He's not, but every single day. And he, he said, don't, you know, we talk uh, often. And I wrote a st- this story about him in the book. He said, people always say, Oh, so sorry. You know, you're not living it. He said, this is the good life. He said, mm. I can't tell you how fulfilling it is for me to talk with someone who just got ALS and to help in that way. And so, you know, it's the heart, um, Uh, so to speak, that uh, is touched here in addition to raising millions of dollars. So I think, you know, as leaders, um, we can lead lives that are purposeful as well as lead organizations that are purposeful, but we have to have practices. Like he's got practices, he does and teaches other people about those practices. So I always say to the leaders, purpose is one thing. What are your practices? We're only as good as our practices. And so um, I've shared the one with the post-it, you know, and uh, to get up every day and and, uh, make a difference in one person's life. But then that becomes addictive. Pretty soon we want more of that feeling. It feels great. People trust. They come to me. They want more of me. And uh, so it's not soft. The soft stuff here is really not that soft.
1: I would love you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, that moment when you're working with someone and they go, I get it. I mean, you know, that enlightenment moment. But then there's the next Monday. And the next Monday morning, they got to get up. And now is when the making it matter starts to kick in. Right. And so just a tiny bit about developing those practices or, or, you know, for me, my experience personally and with some of the people I work with is the courage to step into your purpose. Like yeah. you can have right. a purpose, but then there's this courage to step into it. versus, uh, you know, but if I really wanted to live my purpose, then I'd have to, you know, a little bit of the camel through the eye of the needle kind of thing. Right. Um, So I'd love you to talk just a tiny bit more about that idea of, you know, stepping into your purpose.
2: Well, Frankl just came out uh, in 2019. He died 15 years ago, but they came out with a book of three lectures that he gave prior to, when he got out of the concentration camp, weighed 87 pounds, went home, cured, wrote "Man Search for Meaning in nine days. But prior to writing it, he was giving these talks. And uh, they just came out with a forward by uh, Dan Goldman, the yeah. emotional intelligence guy. And the title is what I wanted to get to here, Tim, and that is this. The title of this book is his message, and that is Say Yes to Life in Spite of Everything. So that's the, that's, what, that's the bottom line of purpose. Say yes to life in spite of everything, in spite of the adversities. Say yes to life every single day. What is your practice to, for, for doing that? And so uh, making it easy and simple, or not easy necessarily, but simple for people. Oh, I don't have to save the world. I don't have to have a cause. But I do have to have a why. Why am I getting up? What's the point of, of the exercise? And so the lectures say yes to life in spite of everything is how I would say that that's kind of the bottom line of a man's search for meaning and our search for meaning. It's a daily Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah.
0: Well, Richard, you know, your focus has been on uh, the later stages of life and connecting to purpose. But I think if you look at the other end for young people, I read a very startlingly sad statistic that 25% of 18 to 24 year olds seriously considered suicide uh, just within one month during this yep. epidemic, June they did this study. And that is just heartbreaking, right? It the people who have the most to live for are, uh, are in such despair. And so this is an existential thing. If you don't connect people to purpose and to these transcendent things, As part of our education system early on in life, you know, some some may or may not discover Viktor Frankl and other things along the way, but most will not. And so it just feels like it's like a stitch in time saves nine, right? We could do so much by incorporating this into our education system early on. And I don't know that most of our school systems do that. Do you know anything about what we're doing or what we should be doing with young people
2: yeah there's there's a lot of a lot going on I'm, I'm working as an advisor to the world leadership school which is in a mm-hmm. n- number of countries uh, a lot of schools are creating purpose schools etc which is kind of the, the big the, the, the big side of that but it's a uh, you know and, and as Carl Jung said the greatest damage you can do to young people or your kids is your own unlived life Mm. So, so part of what's not happening for younger people is us modeling it. Mm. Uh, in other words, so the greatest damage you can do to young people is your own um, unlived life. It's really a a lot of. Um, I'll, I'll say, Raj, that that when I give talks, and I hope to be back on out there, but when I when I am in a room with people, and there's a lot of people in the room, and they. I'll just say, line up afterwards to, to ask a question or to talk. I'd say at least fifty of the, percent of the conversations are. Do you do this for younger people? Mm-hmm. Because I got a kid who's who's a great kid, clueless, and I don't know how to help them. Given you know their own rea- my own reality of being busy and not—they're living in a different world and and, and all of that—and so um, uh, I don't. I do some things for, for younger people, but it's not my core. And uh, But uh, uh, David Shapiro teaches purpose to kids in the fifth grade every week. Mm. It's called, uh, I don't remember what it's called, the um, Philosophy Academy or something like that in, in Seattle where he really is. And he says this, you know, fifth graders, he can he can secretly – take that formula, gifts, passions, and values, but just the gifts part. And he'll talk to somebody and then he'll go in front of the class and he'll say, here's somebody's top five gifts, who is this? And almost everybody in the room knows who that is mm-hmm. without ever having had a conversation about anything like we're talking about here. They know, and they 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 know, mm-hmm. but then as they grow older and and have to make a living perhaps, you know, so many people say at midlife, you know, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be an artist, but I had to make a living and my parents wouldn't pay for an art degree. And so here I am unfulfilled. What do I do now? This is a lifelong challenge. It's not an easy one, but it's got to start, Rajas, earlier with our own modeling. And uh, I think Chip Connolly has coined the term he was the story he's endorsed this book and there's a story about him in the book but hes he's coined the term mentor mentor oh. being a being a mentor and an intern mm-hmm. and so I think we need to be mentors as adults these days learners from these younger people as well as mentors because you know being a mentor it's like but, but whose world are you living in I didn't grow up with computers. I didn't grow up with a whole lot of things that my grandkids are growing up with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Richard, we're going to wrap it up now. And so I'm going to cut that part out, but um, Richard, thank you so much for this, uh, this incredible dialogue and discussion we've had today. Really, really powerful. Um, If people want to hear more about uh, the work you're doing today and now and um, and where where can they go where can they get more information about how to connect with the work you're doing and let me just again put in that plug your book's coming out at the end of the month It's at the end of this month of May and uh, again the title is "It." Uh, who do you want to be when you grow old uh, certainly that's one place but where else can they get more information about the stuff you're doing well
2: my website, which is just my name, Richard Leiter, L E I D E R.com, has a resource section with everything's free. You can download guides to unlocking your purpose. You can, uh, uh, there's t- tons of stuff there. that, And I write a blog uh, every couple of weeks. And so there's a lot of blogs on there that some of which have gone viral or go viral. And I said, share them with whoever you want, if they're useful, because they're always short and they're always practices. There's always something to do. It's not just me pontificating about something I care about, but it's, it's me taking a deeper dive into some segment that I hear that people want more help with. And so um, that's, that's the place. And
0: um, uh, yeah. The only thing I was going to ask is about there are people in the world who have purpose, but it's kind of an evil purpose. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, but your framework has value. So it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, that kind of addresses that, right? You can't, I mean, well, no, purpose the, the, is not enough. It needs to be a higher purpose, right?
2: I talked a little bit about the three levels of purpose, but, but the one universal, regardless of what age or stage or circumstance you're in, is it's always about others and the common good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not about you and your own success or your own tribe or your own, uh, point of view, point of view, even in certain ways, but that's you know that's something that uh, I every time that comes up all the all the time. What about people with a dark side? And I said, well, that's there, and that's something that we have to deal with. But uh, we're talking about the the light side here.
1: Thank you, Richard. That was wonderful. Really appreciated. And thank you to our listeners and uh, whatever. Uh, podcast channel you're listening on if you enjoyed this please hit the subscribe button and if you have any thoughts or comments or you feel so moved please go over to apple podcast or over to spotify and leave us a comment or a rating and if you want to leave a note for raj or i you can go to the consciouscapitalists.com and on our website we have a place where you can leave a note for us Thank you to Carlo Villegas, our weekly producer for these, and Richard, thank you so much for your time and energy and all the beautiful, wonderful work you've done in the world. Thank you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you
2: for inviting me in.